You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading today comes from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How y'all doing? Oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. Uh, I was going to thank Josh, but I feel that there were a few veiled references to my age. So thanks for nothing. I was feeling pretty good about myself, but now I'm a little insecure. Feeling a little rickety, but uh, look, I am so thankful to be here. Uh, You might not know this because we tend to normalize our activities and our environments, but there's something really amazing that's happening here in this church. Uh, I think God's just doing something fantastic, starting with the leadership. Uh, I I love being able to serve alongside Josh and Rebecca. Uh, They're just great people. Character, um, humility, uh, faith, I love that. They're visionary. I got to know uh, Colin uh, about a year and a bit ago at a church planting um, meetup and just really sensed that the Lord had uh, some great things for him. The fact that God brought him here is fantastic. Got to uh, work with Cole at Westside. Uh, So again, I'm just like, wow, this is fantastic. I have nothing good to say about Wells, only because I haven't met him yet. For those of you, who's Wells? It's the kids minister. So... um, uh, so I'm sure by uh, now, eventually, I'll, I'll be able to say something good, but this time I can't because I don't know. So James chapter 5, our text today. Uh, so if, if you don't know, so James is a letter that God wrote to his people through James's pen, and we're now kind of landing. This is getting to the end of the letter. But in James chapter 1, what you saw uh, is a bit of a window into the kind of the the context where this letter is written. And so what's happening is this, that Jesus' people, because of persecution, have had to scatter from their homeland through to different provinces in Rome. They've lost their homeland. They've lost their freedom. They've lost their rights. Does that sound familiar? We're freaking out after two-plus years This was going on for decades. So can you just allow yourself just for a moment to think what the people, Jesus' people were feeling after decades of feeling their freedoms are gone, uh, the the, the tensions of navigating uh, the relationships, how how to navigate um, disagreement and frustration. It, it, It hasn't gone super well. And that's the backdrop for this letter. And so as we're talking about James chapter 5, I need you to know that whatever you and I are feeling right now in this cultural moment because of COVID, because of masks and no masks, 
like, Jesus' people were not doing very well at, uh, in, in 65 AD when this is written, but I just want to say, we're not doing super well right now either. Like, we're having to create new weather phenomenon names to deal with uh, creating metrics. Like, what is a heat dome? Remember in the summer, it got so hot, people were dying, like literally. And so we created this term called a heat dome. It's, this is how bad things are getting. And you and I are like, I don't know how to handle this. And now we created another one. What is an atmospheric river? All I know is that it's bad. You and I are not doing well because for two years, coming on to three, starting our third year, we are living with all kinds of tension. Like right now, uh, mental health is, is at a crisis level. People are struggling with depression and anxiety. And I'm talking in the church, I'm also talking in the city. There's people struggling and they're now self-medicating to try to deal with what's going on. We're drinking too much. We're engaging in recreational drug use way too much because we don't know how to handle this. We're struggling and I'm saying all this because the tension that Jesus' people are having in the time of James, what you and I are going through right now, it's the same. I don't want us to look at this a letter as something that was written 2,000 years ago, but God, in his sovereign way, is written to a group of people, but it's for us, right here and right now. And you and I are struggling to try to figure out how do we handle and navigate this situation that we're in. And if you were to go, what box do you put this text in in today's talk? It's this, how to have hope when things are really, really bad. That's what I want to talk about. How to have hope when things are really, really bad. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12 says this, that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And that's what's been happening in our culture. That's what's been happening in churches. That's what's been happening in our homes, that we're so uptight with what's been happening because we've really lost control. We're losing hope. And Proverbs tells us, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of us are heart sick right now. And I want to speak a word of hope to all of us. So my first point that we see in this text is that we're called to live under the influence of hope. Live under the influence of hope. And verse 7 re reads this, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. If you have an ESV Bible, you might see, if, you, if it has the word brothers, a little number one, go to the margin underneath, and it'll say brothers and sisters. So we can read it this way. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Be patient, therefore, everyone, until the coming of the Lord. Now, this is a really big idea. Anytime you see repetition in a text, uh, it's, it's God, the Holy Spirit, turning up the volume. So in verses uh, 7, verses 8, verses 9, uh, we're told to look to the coming of the Lord. So we know that this is a really big deal. Why? Well, the first thing that we see in verse 7 is that it clarifies. It clarifies who Jesus is. Until the coming of the Lord. 
So the, the title, Lord, is an authoritative title. You and I, we know it, uh, especially if uh, we follow uh, you know, royalty or whatnot, it's, it's a figurative term. It's a figurehead. If you're a hockey fan, you call it Lord Stanley Cup. But there's nothing to the title. That's not what this is. This is a preeminent position in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. The Apostle John says that Jesus is the King of Kings and He's the Lord of Lords. So we need to recognize that this clarifies, number one, who Jesus is, that He's preeminent over all. That's a big deal. The other thing here is uh, be patient until the coming of the Lord. What is being inferred here is that why? Why? What's the coming of the Lord? This is when Jesus comes and liberates us from this sin-cursed earth. So Jesus is not only Lord, he's also our Savior. This is what we're called to, is to be patient until the coming of the Lord. But the coming of the Lord is a big deal because our Savior is going to redeem us, take us from this sin-cursed earth. But I need to just stop. Because Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior, I'm going to say some things in the next few minutes that you're going to go, wow, I, I hope. If not, don't tell me. Just tell me. That was great. But uh, I need to say this, that I'm going to talk about what the day of the Lord looks like. And in today's culture, what we have done is we have said spirituality is the same as Christianity. And I need you to know it's not. Morality is different than sanctification. They're different. So in our world and in our culture, we tend to look at spirituality in this broad sense. But in this text, it's a specific sense. There's this inclusivity when Jesus is Lord. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm a savior in two ways. I'm going to save you from sin. There's this salvific experience that we are, have, have this opportunity that if you believe that Jesus' death on the cross paid your sin debt to God the Father, there is a saving, a saving from our sin, which is great. But also in here, there's a second part to our saving, where Jesus is saving us from a sin, but also Jesus is saving us and liberating us from this earth. So this text in verse 7 clarifies who Jesus is, that he's Savior and that he's Lord. But the next thing that this text does in verse 7 is it clarifies what's coming. And guys, gals... I need you to really listen to this. Because what's coming is better than you can imagine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the day of the Lord, the day where Jesus comes to, to gather us and to bring us it home with him, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9 says this, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can comprehend what God has in store for those who love him. Let that just sit, that on your best day, you can't imagine how good heaven's going to be. Try. I would love for you to. So I have a daughter named Jessie, and she was about nine years old one day, 
And uh, this is at the time I was reading a book called Heaven by Randy Elkhorn. Highly recommend it. It's a great book. So uh, we, were, we were just kind of doing a tuck-in, and uh, I had 1 Corinthians 2.9 in my head. And I said, Dolly, what do you think heaven's going to be like? She goes, I don't know. I said, no, no, no. Let, let, let's just stop. What, what do you think heaven's going to be like? Now, bear in mind, she's a nine-year-old girl who has a sweet tooth like no one I've ever seen. So she goes, well, I think heaven's going to have candy. I'm like, oh, like, what do you mean? Like, candy that I can eat, not candy that I'm not allowed to eat. It's like, that's pretty good. She goes, no, no, Dad, you don't understand. Like, if I'm walking down the road and I see a building, I get to bite into it and eat it because it's candy. So, oh, candy architecture, that's... I said, what else? She's like, wait, I can... I could think even more about how amazing, yeah. Like, I want the best case scenario that you can come up with for heaven. She goes, all right, all right. Well, there's rides. What do you mean rides? I mean rides. Like, you wouldn't believe, like, forget what Disneyland's got. Not like, this is, and she started to describe what these rides are. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty good. Do these rides, do we have to wait in line? She goes, absolutely not. And I said, Jesse, that's a fantastic picture of heaven. But you're not even close. You're not even close. As good as that is, according to 1 Corinthians 2.9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind can comprehend what God has in store for those who love him. What the day of the Lord is, what we are called to be patient for, is something so good, we, we can't, we, we can't. I would love for you as Jesus' people to meditate on that. I'd love for you to journal. Write down the best case scenario of what you think heaven would be like. And, and, and like dwell on it. If you're a poet, write. If you're an artist, draw it, whatever, paint it. Meditate on this. And you can look back and go, that's really good. And it is, I, I, I don't doubt it. And just know that whatever it is that we've come up with, we're not even close. It's that much better. But we can maybe get some ideas from Scripture of what this day, the coming of the Lord, is. In 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, uh, Peter is writing to the same group of people that James is. Jesus' people are dispersed. They're exiled, if you will, from their homeland, and they're scattered. They're tense. They're, they're into this for decades. And God writes through Peter's pen, verse 3, according to his great mercy, according to God the Father's great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So let's just stop for a moment and look at this. That God the Father has an inheritance for his children. There is this free gift that is coming only because the Father wants to give a gift to his children, no strings attached. You will soon come to know, because I'm about to tell you, I got a thing for Jeeps. I love Jeep Wranglers. 
I got a brand new Wrangler Whip. It's fantastic. I love it. But here's the deal. I had a 2007 Wrangler that I, I, I mean, I really, really loved. And when I had to figure out what am I going to do with my, my 07 Wrangler that I love? Simple. There's only one person I could think that kind of deserved it, was good enough for my Wrangler, and it was my daughter. So I said, baby, it's yours. Why would I give my daughter my loved, prized possession? Because I love her. No strings attached. And I knew she got it because uh, she, she walked away once. She sent me this picture of, of the Jeep just in the parking lot. And, and uh, she just goes, looks good. And I'm like, yes, you get it. You absolutely get it. I love that you love what I've given you. No strings attached. This is what our Heavenly Father has for us, an inheritance. But let's just look at the words that God gives to us. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know, these are three words you and I do not know. We only know perishable, defiled, and faded. My brand new Jeep, my fantastic whip, it's already losing its new car smell. It's already wearing out. You and I only know the third law of thermodynamics. Things move to a state of decay. That's all we know. We live in this sin-cursed earth. And what God is saying, what I've got for you, this inheritance, it's just going to blow your mind. You don't understand it because it's imperishable. It can't spoil it's undefiled. For those of us that have had experienced injustice, we've been harmed by people, we've been defiled. If you're untrustworthy because you've been betrayed or double-crossed, what God has for you is undefiled. Let that sink in. This is what the day of the Lord is. It's unfading. This is what God has for us. But there's more. In the same letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, God writes to his people, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So God gives us this inheritance that's unfaded, it's imperishable, it's undefiled. That's what he gives us, this place. But he also does something to you and me, his people, when we go to this place. He restores us. He confirms us. He strengthens us. And he establishes us. Come on, that is unbelievable. You think you're old and broken down, and you are. We all are. When the day of the Lord comes and we receive this inheritance, it's a fantastic place beyond what we can even imagine, but also what the Lord does to us is unimaginable. Restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. We are fixed. There's nothing needed and there's nothing broken when the day of the Lord comes. And you and I are being called to live our lives with this type of hope. That though it sucks right now, there is something so good coming, it's worth the wait. 
So the second thing we see in our text is we're called to be patient. Verse 7 and 8 reads, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. So you also be like the farmer. Establish your hearts. You also be like the farmer. So what are we called to? We're called to be patient for this amazing day. So I've done marriage ministry, working in church for, I don't know, 25 years. I've worked with hundreds of couples in what we call marriage prep. And if you were to be in my marriage prep class, the first session, we talk about defining expectations. It's a crucial thing in, in, in marriage. And here's what I say. So if this were the class, I'd say, hey, all y'all need to recognize that marriage is hard. And you're like, yep. And you have this imaginary threshold of how hard we think marriage is. No, no, no. You don't understand. It's harder than that. Oh, so you'll just raise up that threshold a little bit. If anyone in this room has been married longer than seven years, you know that you are in for a ride that you don't know. You're going to have to navigate issues and challenges and setbacks. And things are, 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 are getting worse and worse. Just We live in a sin-cursed earth. What do you expect? And then once our life circumstances break the threshold of our expectations, we now flip into crisis. And the crisis is one of three ways. Sometimes when, when, when we break the, crisis, uh, break the threshold into crisis, we have a crisis of faith. We're like, God, how could you let this happen to me? I don't deserve this. And we indict God find him guilty in our own court where we are the judge and we bounce. That is how we respond to the crisis. Another way that you have a crisis is when it gets worse, we have a crisis of relationship where the spouse will look at each other and go, you are not the person that I married. Who are you? And you now, you, you disengage from your spouse. And there's, there's now a crisis of relationship. But rather, if we can actually have defined expectations, go, no, no, we knew this was coming. Together, in step with Jesus and, and in, in accordance with scriptures, we're together going to handle the crisis. If we can actually define expectations, it's going to help us when the difficulty comes. And I say that because Christian... How long do you have to be patient until the coming of the Lord? This is so difficult for you and I because we live in a day and an age where we love to just reward ourselves. We love to go, man, I've worked so hard at my diet. I deserve a reward. And what's a reward? 8,000 calories Friday night. Who said? Me, because I deserve it. This is what we do. We reward ourselves for the things that we just should be doing. For those of us that watch our, 
our, our budget and our money, or maybe I'm revealing way too much about how I think. Man, I've been really good following my budget. What's the reward? I'm going shopping like now. Any gains I just had were lost with my frivolous spending. But this is what we do. We're entitled and we feel we deserve a reward. We do this with our Christian walk. I've been faithful. I, I, I've been, man, I've been getting my vaccines. I've been doing what, why, why am I still having the challenge? And what's happening is you're about to move into crisis if you don't have the expectation set. And here we're called to be patient until the day of the Lord. If that day hasn't come, we're to be patient. And that does not sit super well with us. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 11. Remember I said the letter of 1 Peter is written at the exact same time to the exact same people that our letter James is. To people in distress, people that are scattered over Roman colonies, have lost their security, have lost their identity, their safety. And here God is writing in 1 Peter, through Peter's pen, chapter 5, verse 6 to 11, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So what I envision is that it's almost like a boxer in between rounds. You go to the corner, and, and uh, what is the fighter sits on the stool, and the trainer just gives them a couple of words before they go back into the fight. I just want to say some things that will encourage you. That's what this feels like to me. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's the tension of this text. You and I feel that after a period of time that Jesus' people deserved a reprieve, a rest. But that's not what this text is. These people basically had to go back into their difficulty and into their hardship because the... Uh, they were not exalted. Verse 6, that at the proper time, they will be exalted. That wasn't then. They never got the break that they wanted. They never got the reprieve that they felt they deserved. And in our letter in James, it's the exact same thing. Expectation is set. Christian, how long are you supposed to be in this holding pattern? Until the day of the Lord. Not before. Your reward, the thing that you're really looking for, the thing that you're really longing for, that hasn't come yet. And in verse 9, we're given an example of the farmer. Why? Because the farmer serves as an example in patience. The farmer waits 
for the harvest because he knows what is coming and that it's worth it. Like, the farmer's not going to drop the seed and go, dang, I've waited two weeks. Screw that and walk. He's going, no, 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 I know it's coming. The harvest is coming. I'm going to wait, even though I don't like waiting, because what's coming is more important than the tension of the moment that I'm in. He waits even though the naked eye looks like nothing is happening because he knows what's coming and it's worth the wait. The farmer deals with all kinds of hardships and challenges and setbacks because he knows what's coming and it's worth the wait. Christian, you and I are called to be patient, to wait. Why? And the only reason why we ever would is because you and I have a picture of what God has in store for us when the day of the Lord comes. Every day you and I go, why am I doing this? Is this worth it? If you're having trouble with hope right now, if your mental health is struggling, if you're tempted to self-medicating, I want to suggest that you're losing sight on how amazing it is what God has when the day of the Lord comes. I want to call us to develop a robust understanding as best we can on what God has for us. So when it gets hard, and it will, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to have to show vax passes and, and masks and you're going to have to deal with Christmas uh, plans and your family might be divided because of all this stuff. You're going to live in this. Don't, why, why can you ever be hopeful? Because of what's coming. And what's coming is worth it. You and I have difficulties in knowing how to, how to do this. Like, how do we live this? Like, for, for me, uh, my, my flesh takes over, like my carnal thinking takes over all the time. That sometimes in the moment, I'm like, uh, this just feels really good, what I'm, what I'm doing right now. Like, uh, I've got a problem. I'm really glad my wife is not here, though she knows this. My children know this. I have a problem getting tickets. Like, I get tickets all the time. I get pulled over regularly. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not doing anything, and woo, I get pulled over. And uh, I remember one day, I'm driving from college, so as you knew, it was a long time ago, and I did what I do, get pulled over, and I got a ticket. And I did what every man, possibly women, or every young man does after you get a ticket. You get mad. And after I got mad, I'm like, forget this. I threw the car in first and I took off down the road, speeding. Don't tell me what to do. And it felt so good. I'm trying to chirp into second gear. It felt so good. Take that. Guess what happened? Woo! Are you kidding me? And I got two tickets in two blocks. Terrible. 
we can't do this on our own because we will want to do things that just feel right in the moment. We need role models. That is the third thing we see in our text, verses 9 to 11. Verse 9 was the farmer, but let's pick up in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who speak in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast who have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How is the Lord in a, or how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You and I are called to read Scripture, to read the prophets in the Old Testament, not as narratives, like, like a biography. It's more, we, we need to read this and learn. So we can actually learn how to struggle. We can learn how to be faithful because it's really hard. We don't like to do it because sometimes our flesh just kicks in and it feels so good to do these things and it's not a good idea. And we need examples. And that's what this text is talking about. Like here, James gives us the example of Job. And if you were to read Job, in the beginning of the chapter, Job was living his best life now. He's wealthy had a ton of kids, happy marriage, like everything was awesome. And then he lost everything. Like, I mean everything. And if that wasn't enough, he lost everything and he is alone. Like his own wife said, just curse God and die. Thanks, hon. His friends were useless to him. Gave him the worst advice ever. You and I, when we read this, we have a context that Job didn't have in that moment. You and I, when we read the book of Job, we recognize there was a conversation between God and Satan. This had to, this had to do with spiritual stuff. There was something fantastically eternal at work here. But Job didn't know that. He was just grieving. He was just mourning. He was lamenting his life. You and I need to read these examples and go, okay, okay. I got to find a way to be faithful and persevere in times of hardship. I got to find ways to keep my heart soft with the things of the Lord when everything is falling apart. You and I need these role models because if it's left up to us, our flesh will take over. What we see in the fourth point of our text is don't succumb. By that, don't succumb to your good ideas because they're not good ideas. Like, after my ticket and I threw it into first, I tried to get the chirp in second gear. Like, you and I, we give, we lie to ourselves all the time. We give ourselves bad advice all the time. We give ourselves license to do things that we shouldn't be doing. And we cannot listen to that and go, that is a good idea. What we see here in our text in verse 9 is that we see that when we grumble, do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you might not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
The idea, like, we got to stop trying to redeem grumbling. Grumbling has everything to do with the condition of our heart. Let me give you an example. Wait, you don't have the same opinion on masks and vaxxes that I do? Well, I just can't believe you just did that. I just... What we're doing is we're judging somebody because they think differently the way we do. And then we go and we grumble and we start talking to everybody else about this person that they think different than us and we're now sowing seeds of dissension and disunity and the Bible says, stop it. Can I just lovingly say to you, if you have church members or family members that look differently on this COVID situation than you do, stop grumbling about the different opinions. Why? Because you're focusing in on the wrong thing. There's something bigger happening. There's something more that we should be concerned about. And, and if we're tempted to grumble, let it actually be an example of the condition of our heart. And we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is getting hard. I'm trying to take control of the situation. I'm trying to manipulate things into my way. And I need to confess. I need to let you be the Lord. Remember, Jesus is Lord, preeminent overall. I'm going to just take a back seat and let the Lord drive. I in the 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17, the apostle Paul says, "For this light and momentary affliction." So this light and momentary light and momentary affliction. So in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul describes his light and momentary affliction what he means. This is what Paul says. Five times I was whipped with 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That is not a confession of recreational drugs. Three times he was shipwrecked. Light and momentary, by the way. A day and a night adrift at sea. One on frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, light and momentary affliction, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Christian, we have no reason to grumble with whatever it is that we're going through. I know we want to. It feels so good. Quick, get me on social media so I can post my grumbling and my opinions and my thoughts. It feels so good. We actually tell ourselves that we're educating people. We tell ourselves that it's cathartic. I just got to get this off my chest. No, you don't. No. The Bible actually talks about being slow to speak to tame the tongue, which we looked at a few weeks ago. That's what the call of Jesus' people are, not to grumble. I 
The next thing that this text is calling us to not succumb is to not succumb to our control. Verse 12. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under, uh, under condemnation. So above all, what, what James is saying is, in light of everything we've just talked about here, this is the most important. This is a big deal, which is interesting. In light of our text, why is this above all? And the reason why is, next is chapter 20, verse 7, we get, we get a bit of insight. It's the Ten Commandments. And God says to us, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And what that command is, like, we need to stop thinking it means we need to stop saying OMG. That's not what this text is talking about. Don't say it. I'm not saying to say it or not say it. That's not what this text is. What this text is talking about is do not use the name of the Lord and the authority that comes with that name for your own gain, for your own agenda. It's like me saying, stop in the name of the law. What I'm saying is the authority that the law gives me allows me to command you to stop. This is why it is illegal to impersonate a police officer. And here what we are being called to do is that you and I do not get to use the name of the Lord and evoke the authority that comes with that for our own agenda. Like, I just want to caution all of us to be very, very careful when we say, thus says the Lord. The Lord did not tell us one way or another about a vaccine. You can have your opinion either way, it's fine. I'm, I'm not commenting, but we do not get to invoke the name of the Lord and the authority of the Lord for what we think. Like for me, I am so mindful of this. I'm so cautious of this. The only thing that I'll say for a fact is what the Lord says is just when Scripture speaks. That, that's about the only time I'm going to say, thus says the Lord. Because I'm literally quoting God the Holy Spirit when I do the text. What James is calling us to do is to control our tongue, which is consistent with the letter, and to not impose our agendas, our wants, and our desires. Whether it's, I swear, by heaven, or by earth, or by any other oath, stop it. That is so hard for you and I to do because we look for allies. We, we look for justification. We look for reason. And that is not what we get to do. Why? What's our call? To be patient for the coming of the Lord. Christian, I want you to walk away from this going, right, it's about Jesus. It's about his lordship. And there's going to be a day where he's going to liberate me from this earth to a place where nothing is needed and nothing is broken. And until that day, I'm going to wait. 
I'm going to be afforded the opportunities of role models. I'm going to be afforded the opportunity of being obedient to withhold, uh, succumbing to my own ideas. Why? Because it's worth the wait. It's worth the struggle. I'm going to ask the band to make their way up. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. We looked at the first part of this, but now let's just hear the end of this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen, they're eternal. Praxis, you and I are being called to draw a distinction from the struggles and the issues of this world and focus our attention on the things that are eternal. You do that, hope is going to be front and center. You do that, Hope will not be deferred. Your heart will not be sick. Your heart will be healthy. You'll be able to flourish in these difficult and trying times. You're going to walk out these doors. You have to deal with all the garbage you've been dealing with. There's a way for you and I to flourish in those moments. And it's to recognize what God has in store for us. As we just move to communion, can I get you to stand Let's just slow things down just for a moment before we take communion. I want to ask you to just maybe do a bit of a spiritual inventory. Like, how are you doing in your relationship with the Lord? Like, there might be some of you, as you're listening to this, you're just, the Lord is just showing areas of your life where you actually have not been living the way the Lord is calling you. And that's sin. I want to call you to identify that, to confess him before the Lord, and receive the forgiveness that Jesus has for you. 1 John 1 9 says that he, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That right now, if you can take this moment, just humbly before the Lord, will allow you to stop walking in hypocrisy. It'll allow you to stop walking in any kind of condemnation and loathing. It'll stop you from walking around believing that you're a joke because of your secrets. You can bring them into the light. And you can be whole. There can be healing. There's some of you maybe in this room that you're like, man, I don't even know Jesus. Uh, I, I know spirituality and I know, you know, spiritual practices, but I don't know Jesus as Lord, preeminent overall. I don't know Jesus as Savior, one who saves me from my sin, and there's going to be a day where he saves me from this sin-cursed earth. I don't know him in that salvific sense. I want to ask you, today, would you give your life to Christ? There's no magic prayer there's no secret handshake. There's no steps that you need to take. It's, it's really this simple. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins? Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that that death paid your sin debt to God the Father? If it's yes, there's a shift in your heart where you move from that of sinful to that of forgiven, from that of cursed to that of blessed. Why? Just by believing that Jesus did this? Yes. It's a free gift, and this gift has an inheritance attached to it. And we're called to that. So, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to take a moment and to just allow yourself to respond the way you need to. Because when we take communion, I just want to just say this, that communion is made available to anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. Not a follower of spirituality. Not a follower of morality, but of Christ. And when you're ready, and you have this opportunity, you're going to just come up and take the communion cup and go back to your seat and pray. Repent. Give your life to Christ. And then when you're ready, just peel off that first layer, which is a cracker, which represents the body of Jesus. And then peel the second layer off, which is the juice, which represents the blood of Jesus. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink this. Jesus, I just thank you that we have this opportunity to be saved from our sins. Thank you that we have this promise that there's going to be a day where we're going to be redeemed and rescued from the fallenness of this world. That there's the day of the Lord that's coming. What a gift that you've given us, Jesus. That you just willingly went to the cross and you died a brutal death paying the price of our sin, absorbing the wrath of God in our place. Oh, Jesus, we're a grateful people. We don't deserve it. There's no equation, math equation, can ever make a balanced statement. It is all by your grace. It is all by your goodness. And so we are a thankful people. And as we just take the communion, and as we respond, we respond with joy, with worship, with adoration, with humble and open hearts, because Jesus, you are great. We love you. We thank you. We praise in your good name. Amen. Amen.